I loved the following chat with Andrew Khalil as he takes us on an underwater journey talking about sharks, reefs, seagrass and of course what is a marine chat without touching on some controversial topics like global warming and human-animal interaction. Andrew Khalil is not only a marine biologist but he's a science teacher as well and spends a lot of time underwater so we certainly will be getting him back but in the meantime enjoy the following wild chat. Have you ever wondered how a kangaroo can live in a tree? What about crocodiles and how they can stay underwater for hours at a time and not be seen? Maybe what keeps you up at night is your thoughts of how box jellyfish can be the most venomous animal in the whole world towards humans? Or is it your curiosity of what really goes on inside that caterpillar cocoon for a magnificent stunning butterfly to emerge? Well, don't worry, as I have all your questions answered and much, much more with our following wild chats, I am going to bring you the most amazing guests. Hey everyone, my name is Jodie Creek and I'm a wildlife educator and huge advocate for Australian animals and of course their habitats and ecosystems as well. But what I'm truly passionate about is bringing you information that you need to connect with the natural world. So someone once said to me that I may not be able to change the world, but I can change the world around me. So let's hope that we can inspire you to make change at home and therefore together we do actually change the world. So get that cup of tea ready and enjoy the following Wild Chats. All right, Andrew, how are you? I'm great. How about you? So excited to finally have you on. I tell you what, we've been trying to track each other down for Mm -hmm. months actually. (laughs) Yeah, it's been one of those years. Well, bring on 2021. I see you on Facebook and all the socials there and you seem to be out and about exploring the reefs. So I'm actually really excited to talk to you about, well, anything marine at the moment because that's what you do. That's who you are. And I can see that you have your shark conservation shirt on Yeah, Love it. I would love to just dive in if that's a good pun there. (laughs) It's a good one, yeah. (laughs) I'd love to dive in and just... Well, introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about who you are, what you stand for, where you are in the world, mm-hmm. and we'll, we'll see where this wild chat takes us. Awesome. So my name is Andrew Khalil, and I am a few things. I'm a marine biologist, <laughs> an underwater photographer, a science teacher. Those are a few of the things that I do in a typical year, depending on what time of the year it is. And at the moment, I live on the Sunshine Coast, which is in the southeast coast of Queensland. And it is a really beautiful place to be diving. A lot of people think of the Great Barrier Reef when they go diving. And it's really amazing further north where the Great Barrier Reef is as well. But down here, it's a very different ecosystem. So the reefs down here are based around a lot of the rock and geology of the area rather than actual structures created by the corals themselves, which is pretty cool. So if you know about the Great Barrier Reef, you know that over the last 10 to 15,000 years, it's actually been built up by coral off the continental shelf as sea levels have sort of increased over that time the reefs risen with it. It's really cool. And if you know about coral, it's an animal, not a plant, even though branches and it looks a lot like plants. It's an animal. 
Each coral is made up of hundreds or thousands of really tiny animals called coral polyps. They build the skeleton together. They all live in it like a big apartment building, all as friends in the same skeleton, which is pretty cool. And over time, they unfortunately die, and new ones form on the dead skeletons. And that's how you get a reef forming from the ground up. And as the water level rises, it gives more space for more reef to form. So down here, it's different, though, because down here, the geology actually has a lot of existing stone reefs and stone structures just off the coast. And corals like to grow on other hard objects, whether it's a rock or another coral skeleton. They're not too picky. So a lot of the reefs down here are stone reefs with lots of corals growing on them. They uh, have also formed over quite a long time, and they're really beautiful in and of themselves. You get uh, a few less species of coral down this way because the water's colder, but you do get a lot of different ones and you get different species of fish. You get a lot of really cool sharks that you may not see up there because they prefer cooler water. So in the winter months here we get to dive with grey nurse sharks on almost every dive. We see them sometimes seven, eight, nine at a time. It's really special. They're a critically endangered species off of Australia. So it's really special when we do get to see them. We see a lot of turtles down here just like we do up north. They love the seagrass beds down here and uh, seagrass grows all along the uh, east coast of Queensland. So you get lots of turtles down here just like you do up north as well. And uh, sometimes we get to see a few more animals because there's not as many people in the water here as there are in a lot of places up north either. Yeah, it is a really, really cool place to be and a lot of the photos I've taken kind of show that and uh, it's really nice to capture. Yeah, most definitely. And it's interesting mm -hmm. to hear that these little kind of reefs or away from the big Great Barrier Reef don't really get much of a mention. And you were saying earlier on mm -hmm. to me that if not, it was more beautiful or it was a better opportunity to see animals for you. You've dived on the, on the Great Barrier Reef plenty of times because that's mm -hmm. something that you do. So tell us what came up for me when you're talking about the grey nurse sharks. So you were saying during winter, where are they during the summer months or what's happening with the grey nurse sh sharks then? Yeah, it's a really good question. So uh, studies by Syro show that they migrate further south as the water gets colder. So they really don't like it warm at all. You don't really see them much further north than maybe here and up to Bundaberg and then that's as far as they'll get and then once it's too warm, they'll go back south past Sydney and uh, into cooler waters and stay there until it gets cold again and then come back the following winter. So, yeah. <laughs> Sounds like some people here in Australia, they go from Tasmania yeah. to the north. To... <laughs> yeah. Depends on the weather. Mm -hmm. So what's caused the massive decline? I mean, it's obviously not just the grey nurse sharks, but sharks in general, what is the biggest cause for the grey nurse that you know yeah. of? Yeah. Well, grey nurse sharks, if you've ever seen one, they look scary. They have really, really long, thin teeth. The teeth stick out in uh, different directions. So they don't look friendly, but they're actually pretty harmless to us because they're not interested in us at all. Those really long, thin teeth are really good for eating fish, but they're not very good for eating many other things, and they're certainly not very good for uh, eating anything the size of us. So that's basically what grey nurse sharks are. They're a fish-eating shark with a very bad reputation like a lot of other sharks, and basically people uh, fished them out and killed them thinking they were the types of sharks that may have been attacking people, but it's really far from the truth. Very few incidents, if any, 
have ever been attached to gray nurse sharks. And they're a very placid shark to dive around. They pretty much just float. They're almost motionless, very graceful, and they just swim around. And they'll move away from you, but in a lot of places, they're pretty familiar with divers, and they'll let us swim around them and not really pay too much attention to us. So, yeah, unfortunately, they were just really overfished in the last century before they were completely protected. Now they're a protected species here. But because they have so few young, like most sharks, it's taking a really long time for their uh, populations to increase again. Uh, so how often do they breed? Or are they live birth or eggs or greener? They give birth to live babies, but normally just oh. one at a time. Yeah, they're not very like most sharks. Most sharks don't give birth to very many babies. Even the very common ones we see on the reef, normally just about 8 to 12 babies a year for the majority of species uh, mm. at the most. When you compare that with a lot of other fish, a lot of other fish, for example, barramundi will uh, lay 10,000 eggs in a season, mind you, not the majority won't survive, uh, where sharks put more effort into having fewer young that are more likely mm. to survive. But they just don't have, they don't breed in the numbers that a lot of people think mm. they might. And Andrew, can you tell us, I mean, obviously sharks get a bad rap. They, they're scary mm -hmm. because we are not sure what is going to happen. We don't know if they're going to attack us mm -hmm. and so forth. And can you tell us a little bit about the role of sharks within our waterways, within the reef, within our river systems? all that. Tell us a little mm. bit about them. Yeah, sharks are incredibly important. They do have a bad reputation. They are predators, but they're very selective predators. They're not looking for us to eat. They're certainly not hunting humans. They're looking for very specific prey items, and the humans are definitely not on the menu. Even for really large species like tiger sharks and great whites, they're very much adapted to eating things that they've been eating for millions of years, and they don't like to deviate from their menu very much. If they were trying to eat us, hypothetically, they would find it really, really easy to because we're very slow in the water. We can't really defend ourselves. We can't really do anything about it. And so if sharks really did like the taste of people or were actively hunting us, uh, you'd see people being eaten and attacked every single minute of the day because it would pretty much be a buffet for them in the summer at every beach in Australia. But we don't see that. We see a handful of incidents a year and the majority of people survive those incidents and they're very they're pretty much never actually eaten so it pretty much shows that they do make a mistake but those mistakes are extremely rare considering how much a surfer looks like a seal or a turtle floating on the surface. So you have to give sharks credit. Their sensory systems are absolutely amazing. They have extra senses that we don't have. So they can actually sense a couple of things that we have no idea what it would feel like to sense. They can sense elect electrical fields in the water. If you look at a shark's face close up, ideally in a photo, you probably don't want to get close enough to do that in real life unless you're studying them. You have these tiny black dots on their face called ampullae of Lorenzini. And these tiny black dots are little gel-filled pits directly connected to the shark's nervous system. And they are like having one of those electrical voltmeters uh, built in uh, to your face where you can actually detect the 
electrical fields given off by other animals. And if you didn't know, our entire nervous system, our heartbeat, it's all minute electrical impulses, and sharks can actually feel those through the water at a short range. So it's really, really cool, and they use that as a hunting tool to find animals that are struggling or buried in the sand or hiding in a crevice somewhere. One of the most famous types of sharks, uh, hammerhead, it's really cool. In terms of evolutionary time, it's one of the most recently evolved sharks. And that really wide, flat head amplifies a lot of the senses that they have. So those electrical receptors on a hammerhead's really flat, broad head, they're all underneath, so they cover a really large area. So they, you'll see them swimming over the sand, using it like a metal detector to find rays and other fish that are actually buried. And hammerheads also have nostrils that are further apart than other sharks. So the same way that we can hear a sound come from a different direction because our ears are a different a distance apart, the hammerhead can actually tell the direction of a smell depending on which nostril it's hitting first. And the sharks have amazing senses of smell. We can smell as well, but nowhere near as powerful as that of a shark. We really couldn't find something based on smell very easily. Even dogs and a lot of other animals rely on smell a lot more than we do. Sharks have that sixth electrical sense, but they also have a lateral line on the side. That's something that all fish have. If you've ever looked at a fish, you'll see that faint line running along the side of their body, and that detects pressure differences in the water. That's why fish can school in the thousands and not all run into each other, because they can actually feel the pressure differences from the other fish around them. It's also why it's really hard to sneak up on a fish, because they can actually feel you turning a corner or coming toward them. So that lateral line is in sharks as well. So they have got extra senses that we don't have. You might ask, okay, so cool, they have these really cool senses and they're really good at finding things and eating things ultimately. That's why they have the senses so they can find those other animals to eat. But as Jody asked, what does that do in the ecosystem? And in the ecosystem, it has a really important role. Basically, sharks act as what we call in the scientific world, apex predators. Apex predators are at the top of a food pyramid. If you look at, if you've studied ecology, you know, you've got a pyramid, you've got all the plants at the bottom, you've got your herbivorous animals above it, followed by small carnivores. And at the top of the carnivores, you've got your apex predators. And those are animals that basically are really important in the ecosystem because they control the population of everything below them. If you have too many smaller predators on a coral reef, like groupers and other large fish that the sharks are eating, they actually eat a lot of the herbivorous fish like parrotfish and the surgeonfish. Now, those herbivorous fish are playing a really important role on a reef because they're eating a lot of the algae, seaweed, and other things that coral competes with. So if you get too much of that, you get less coral. So everything's actually in perfect balance in a reef ecosystem. And sharks are really important at maintaining that balance. And studies show that healthy reefs have a lot of sharks. A lot of the islands in the middle of nowhere in the Pacific, you go diving and you just see sharks everywhere. So they are really, really important to our ecosystems. They also keep fish healthy. So you don't see very many sick fish on the reef. 
because unfortunately for them, they've probably been eaten long ago because they're weaker than all the other fish. And if you're a shark, you're not going to put all the effort into chasing a healthy fish. You know, they're still, they're really good predators, but they're still lazy. You know, who wants to run after something when it's delivered to you or if it's already sick? So sharks are going to go for the sick ones first. And that eliminates those fish. It means that disease isn't going to spread to other fish. It means that if that fish was maybe genetically inferior to the rest, it's now been removed from the gene pool. So long term, they shape a lot of how fish have evolved to avoid sharks. And through natural selection, a lot of the colors, behaviors, uh, almost everything we see fish do has been shaped by their predators as part of them surviving over millions of years. So sharks play a really, really important role, both long term and short term on reefs love that mm-hmm. you said that perfectly thanks yeah. for sharing that andrew you no mentioned, worries i loved how you mentioned how things like the surgeon fish will eat too much of the algae and then that affects the reef can you explain mm-hmm. how that possibly how like what role does algae play in regards to the coral and why is it important then obviously to have not as many of those particular fish that eat the algae and you know you did explain that nice flow there but What role does the algae play within the coral anyway? Why is that important that there's less fish-like Yeah, Yeah, so there's different algaes, and a lot of them are incredibly important to the ecosystem. They do provide a food for a lot of fish and other animals. We know dugongs, turtles, all sorts of animals will graze on algae. That algae competes with coral, though. So because it grows so much faster than coral does, if you have too much algae, it smothers the coral and prevents the coral from growing properly. So again, everything sort of exists in perfect balance together. So algae will outgrow coral in a lot of situations. If you don't have enough fish grazing it, you have a problem. If you have too many nutrients in the water as well, remember that Uh, algae loves the same nutrients that our farmed crops do. So if we're letting a lot of fertilizer into the ocean, it's the same. It's basically another plant. So it's growing off that fertilizer as well. And we're giving the algae a helping hand when we don't want the algae to get a helping hand any more than it normally does. We want everything to stay in balance. And those fish are really, really important. The main groups of fish that we know are very important to controlling algae, like we said, parrotfish, surgeonfish, and rabbitfish. Those are the three main families that we've sort of identified as coral reef scientists as uh, really, really important on coral reefs. And you mentioned before, so it it really is that fine line because there needs to be a certain amount of algae to then obviously feed those particular fish, Mm -hmm. but you go overboard. And so we... I live in North Queensland. This is where I've met you before because you were up here. We were yeah. at Cairns Aquarium together. And so we have a lot of farms and we have a lot of rain. And so with that comes a lot of the runoff from the farms. And then like what you mentioned is that nutrients, extra nutrients going out into our river systems and then the reef. Mm-hmm. What I see or what mm-hmm. I get a little bit confused about. We do, yeah. We need the farmers. The farmers obviously bring up produce and that's their livelihood as well but how do we work together to yeah have less of that runoff within our river systems and reef yeah there's a lot of ways 
the different organizations are trying to address it. Ultimately, we need to find ways so that we're not wasting fertilizer either. And that helps with the farmers as well, because the farmers don't want to buy extra fertilizer just to wash it into the ocean anyway, because that doesn't help anyone. So ultimately, finding the proper amount that they need for the different crops that they have, and just making sure that runoff isn't a factor and ideally applying those that fertilizer a good time when it's not raining when it's not going to be washed away when they're going to get the most benefit from it because that's the most economically sensible thing to do as well if they want to save money that helps everyone and a lot of new things are coming out in terms of technologies for reducing runoff from land from maybe absorbing a lot of these nutrients we do know a lot of mangrove forests that used to exist would have actually helped with the problem because mangroves used to absorb a lot of these nutrients before they made it out to the reef to begin with. So initiatives to reforest a lot of mangrove areas are also really, really important uh, long-term at dealing with the problem of nutrients, plus all sorts of cool technology like developing different fertilizers and a lot of interesting things out in that field of study that I think are coming into place over time as well. Yeah, for sure. I have heard quite a bit and I meet a few people along mm. the way who are involved in some of that research and also new technologies, which is really exciting because I just hope we catch it in time, that's all, because, you know, we get to a point where we see issues and then we address it, but sometimes it's just too late. And so does all that nutrients also affect our seagrass? It does because seagrass also it can also be covered in algae as well. Seagrass is actually really mm. important. We're finding out so much about it. It's one of the densest uh, carbon capture. Yeah. And so explain to us why it's important for the coral reefs in regards to light and algae and all that. Like, yeah, so many people don't actually understand that process. So can you explain a little bit about why that? Organisms that we know of. So it has a really big role, not just in the ecosystem that actually lives within the seagrass, but mm. on a bigger scale in terms of climate change and and a lot of other factors that seagrass is important for. Uh, like a lot of other things, though, we've seen seagrass declining in a lot of areas. So uh, we're trying to understand why. And even though seagrass itself will use nutrients in the water, nutrients in the water also have the problem of feeding different kinds of algae. Some algaes don't actually grow on things. They actually microalgae that are in the water. And when you get too much of them, they actually reduce the clarity of the water, meaning not enough light gets down to the seagrass so that it can grow properly. There are places where seagrass is found 30, 40 meters down because the water is so clear. Depending on where you are in the world, places off of Hawaii have seagrass very deep down because the water is so clear. Uh, around here, it's in shallower water because Queensland does get a lot of rain and that naturally reduces the visibility. But we do get even less visibility. As scientists, we call it turbidity is a measure of how much, how deep you can see through the water. And yeah, seagrass needs a certain clarity to grow where it's been growing for a really long time. So without that, those specific water conditions. Seagrass just can't grow anymore. It gets covered in different kinds of algae and that causes a problem as well. And uh, similar to coral reefs, corals also need a specific amount of light to reach them as well. Nutrients in the water have, they affect things in multiple ways. So reducing the uh, water clarity is just another one of the problems that we're starting to see from nutrients. Yeah, definitely. I love that. I love how you explained it. Hopefully everyone understood that really well. And there's so many effects that or things that we do that mm -hmm. can affect 
our beautiful little coral there. I just want to jump back to the carbon capture, and I think that comes down to exactly yeah. how you just left off in regards to the coral and the temperature rising and so forth. So can you just explain what is carbon capture, what is carbon, and why are our oceans so important? And Yeah, yeah definitely. Tell us a little bit about that. So we did say corals were an animal, and they are. But they're a really, really special animal because they have a relationship with another. We're talking so much about algae. There's another algae, a dinoflagellate called zooxanthellae that actually lives in the coral's tissues. So coral's an animal, but it has algae, a plant, living in its tissues. And most of the corals actually get their nutrition from the sugars that that zooxanthellae produces. And so knowing that, we can figure it out. If we've done biology, we know that for photosynthesis to happen, for sugar to be produced, we need light as well. So corals also need light in order to grow and get the proper nutrition through that zooxanthellae. So in the world, you'll see that coral reefs occur in places where there are certain conditions. And one of those conditions is clear water. They need a certain level of water clarity in order to actually photosynthesize. A very quick announcement to make that I'm so excited. Our home education virtual portal is up and running and you can visit that at www.australianwildlifeeducation.com and if you are a parent or you know other parents who have children ages 4 to 12, this one is specifically for them and they get to learn more about Australian wildlife. So, yeah, that relationship between the zooxanthellae and the coral is really important. We know from a lot of things that happened in the last decade that when that relationship is broken, we have a really big problem on the reefs. You may have heard of coral bleaching. A coral bleaching is basically an immune response from the coral. And unfortunately for the coral, that immune response involves expelling the zooxanthellae from its tissues until things return to normal. And that's a really big problem when most of your nutrition is coming from that zooxanthellae. Uh, that zooxanthellae is also responsible for a lot of the pigment in the coral. And so what ends up happening is coral bleaching, you end up with corals that look very white. That's because the animal without any of the pigments is actually very see-through. So those little coral polyps we talked about earlier, they're without the pigments in their tissues, they're just like a clear jellyfish looking animal. And you can see right through them to the white skeleton of the coral. This is really different from a white coral that's dead on the beach that you might find when you're on holidays somewhere. A bleached coral is still alive. If you know what to look for and you look closely, you can see the little coral polyps are all still there and they're still alive. It's not necessarily a death sentence for the coral if things return to normal. Within a couple of weeks, a coral can actually regain the zooxanthellae and go back to normal if the conditions go back to what the coral prefers. Now, a lot of things can cause corals to bleach. Basically, any of those parameters parameters that aren't correct will upset the coral and potentially cause it to bleach. We know that if salinities change, corals can bleach. Too much or too little light can cause them to bleach. But the definite factor that's been causing these bleaching events in the last 10 years has definitely been warming oceans. We know that it's from climate change. We can basically predict it at any point that the water temperature gets too far above 27, 28 degrees Celsius, closer or above 30. We know without a 
little doubt that reefs will start to bleach. So, yeah, it's not just an idea that we think it's causing it. We definitely know that uh, reefs are bleaching because of warming oceans. And yeah, basically the relationship between the coral and its little uh, symbiont. Carbon is a naturally occurring element. If we go all the way back down to the basics and you look at your periodic table that you may not have looked at since uh, your chemistry class in school, carbon C is an element and it's naturally occurring. It's not evil or anything. We need it. We're actually mostly made of carbon ourselves. And so uh, without it, life really wouldn't exist. However, carbon is also a really important gas in our atmosphere. It comes from a lot of different sources, some of them natural, some of them not. For millions of years, we've had a level of carbon in our atmosphere, and we know that when that level of carbon has changed, uh, climate on Earth has changed as well. So we definitely don't argue that climate has changed over the billions of years that Earth has existed. What we're seeing now and what's concerning now is that that level of carbon has spiked since the Industrial Revolution. That spike in carbon levels has also led to what we call climate change. And that means the average temperature of most places on Earth is actually rising. And you may not think that that's a big deal, especially if you live somewhere colder colder places. Oh, yeah, it'll be summer all the time. But that's a really big problem because... Earth depends on a very, very stable climate. In terms of the universe, we're not very far from either being scorched hot by the sun or freezing to death if we're a little further. Everything, all the life that we know of at the moment that exists on Earth exists here because our temperature is actually at a really, really perfect place for it to exist. We talk about a one and a half degree rise in temperature on the Earth as being a really big problem. And a lot of people don't see it as you know, oh, one and a half, two degrees. Oh, that's just like coming from outside to inside some days. But if you look at your body, if your temperature in your body goes up two degrees, uh, you'll be in hospital and pretty dead. So that two degrees on a global scale is a really, really big problem. Like we said, we know it causes coral bleaching. And eventually, if that doesn't stop, we're actually going to lose a lot of the reefs over the next few decades if we can't find ways to not only make reefs more resilient, but also to reduce how much our planet is going to warm as a result of the carbon that we've released. Now, carbon capture, in explaining that, all the carbon that we released was at one point stored in the oil and in everything that we're burning. Over millions of years, those plants and animals, because we said we are made of carbon ourselves, so are the plants and animals that are in those fossil fuels. We call them fossil fuels because they're basically fossilized plants in the case of coal and other fossilized animals in the case of the oil that we mine. So the fossil fuels are actual fossils and those were carbon life forms at one point just like us. So all the carbon over millions of years that's been stored in those fossil fuels has been released back into the air as a carbon gas. And that carbon gas, we know, acts as a little bit of a blanket for the planet. It holds more of the sun's heat in than it would normally hold in. And that's why it's causing our planet to warm. That carbon's also problematic for a couple of other reasons. Now, we know our oceans store carbon as well. In fact, most of the carbon is actually stored in the ocean. The issue with that is as 
as the carbon level in the ocean increases, it actually makes the ocean's pH decrease, which makes the water more acidic. Now, if you know about corals and animals that need to make shells, they rely on a high pH in order to be able to assemble their shells and skeletons from the different elements in seawater. As the pH decreases because of the extra carbon in the air, it becomes more difficult for them to actually build those skeletons. And again, this isn't just theoretical. We definitely know a lot of these things cause corals to grow more slowly. For those of us that keep corals in aquariums, we can observe a huge rate in growth just by increasing the pH and by decreasing it. There's a definite relationship there. And we've done that as scientists in a lot of aquariums over the years with very specific measurements. And the other thing is you can look at, if you have a pH meter or a way to test pH and you blow bubbles in a glass of water, you'll actually see the pH drop very, very quickly because of the carbon that you're exhaling into it and it's mixing in. So all of this is very, is a lot of it is actually pretty simple science that we've known about for a while. We're actually starting to observe based around all of that carbon and all of that science actually coming into life as we know it now. So, yeah. yeah. And then for me, what comes up is like, as scientists, it's been known for quite some time, like a long time. How do we get the general public to know and understand that? And it comes down like you're wearing your shark conservation. Mm. It's about science and people, like just everyone coming together to understand our role that we play, the consequences, mm-hmm. but also understanding and educating about it. So there's so much that has come up for me in regards to that. And I feel like this may even be another podcast, but what I wanted to mm-hmm just quickly ask you is I have seen some research being done in regards to doing more seagrass farming or the seaweed um, kelp farming yeah. so mainly mm-hmm. because that holds a lot of carbon or it brings down more carbon mm-hmm. so do you know much about that particular research or what's going on with that but I have seen quite a bit going on around the world not just in Australia to kelp mm-hmm. farming. Yeah, off the top of my head, I don't know a huge amount about the specific projects, but the idea behind it is we know that a lot of, like we said before, we know a lot of these fossil fuels were stored as uh, carbon sources in from organisms in the past. And we know that a lot of organisms at present hold carbon. So we know that forests and trees convert carbon back to oxygen. So do algae, so do seagrass. So increasing a lot of these very dense carbon capture sources, whether they be kelp or seagrass or just terrestrial forests, all kind of contributes to pulling more of that carbon out of the atmosphere and back into natural systems and storing it rather than leaving it as free carbon in the atmosphere. So all of those initiatives are helping do that. And that's the key with those projects there's different specifics Mm. but overall that's what they're aiming to do i actually heard i don't know if this is true but elon musk Mm -hmm. put a big call out for someone who can come up with the best project in Mm. regards to the carbon collection or carbon capture thing or technology or whatever it is and he'll give so much money Mm. away yeah, That's really- yeah. There's a 100 million US dollar reward for someone who can come up with a way to capture carbon. I imagine what he means is because we know that trees mm-hmm. and a lot of things do it, but the scale on which we would need to do it to make a difference in the atmospheric carbon level, we're talking about billions mm-hmm. of tons of carbon now. 
that need to be captured somehow and stored in some form that's not a gas. I don't know. I'm not an engineer, unfortunately. <laughs> I imagine it would be super cool if someone could come up with a way to basically in a machine or something, amplify what happens in those natural systems and make something that can harvest carbon from the atmosphere at a, you know, at an industrial scale that dwarfs everything else. <laughs> and it's a little bit scary that so. if we don't actually come up with something, what's going to happen? You know, that's... We have a lot of potential problems. A lot of them we're already mm. seeing. And again, we've had these things for a while, but when we look at the frequency of things like droughts that we had in Australia last year, same with the bushfires that we had, the frequency of a lot of these events is the issue here. We, A lot of people argue, it's like, oh, we've had bushfires for decades, but the frequency that we're having them is increasing more than it has ever before that we know of. In some places that's drought and bushfire, in other places that's the opposite. That's going to look like flooding and extra rain because all the rain that's leaving places that would have had droughts is going to end up somewhere else. Just basically weather patterns shift a lot. We get a lot more extreme. And in a lot of places in the world, that's going to make life very, very difficult. Extreme heat and cold are very, very... Again, humans are very delicate. We don't really survive in very much without the technology that we have. And our technology can only go so far. Climate change is going to make things difficult in a lot of places in the world via flooding, via heat waves. And a lot of those people are going to want to move. So we're going to see a lot of people moving around the world. It's going to be interesting in terms of political issues as well. We have entire countries in the Pacific Ocean that are disappearing now. So what happens to those countries, both you know, practically, politically, in terms of humanitarian perspectives, we have quite a few problems. You know, we know the climate is changing, even I would say to those people who are arguing that it's not our fault. That's fine, but it's still changing and we know that it's changing. So what are we going to do with all these displaced people? That's just people. We haven't even discussed the ecological problems from that and the animals and effects on natural ecosystems that climate change has. So it's really in our best interests as a collective organism on this planet to really start uh, trying our best to fix it and to make it so that we can live here for, you know, who knows how much longer without these problems. Yeah, for sure. And I love that you just addressed that. It's the issue here isn't whether you believe specifically that climate yeah. change exists. The reality of the situation is there are issues mm -hmm. happening. There is that mm -hmm. flow on effect and that's mm -hmm. just it. It's something that a lot of us, and this comes with the people science clash. And I feel mm. so up here in North Queensland, so we are, the date we're recording this is the 29th of January, 2021. And yesterday yeah. we had a very small crocodile incident in regards mm -hmm. to a gentleman who yes. decided to go swimming in an area mm -hmm. where there was actually a crocodile warning sign that said, there's crocodiles mm -hmm. that live within that particular estuary and he still made that choice his own choice to go into the water mm -hmm. and this was only a little crocodile he was a very lucky man and it did get him they believe it may have been around about one and a half meter if it was any bigger he probably yeah. wouldn't have survived because it did grab him by the head by the and head, then yeah. he you know put his hand in the mouth and did whatever he did as i said if it was a larger crocodile he wouldn't have even had that because mm -hmm. it would have crush things. Now, yeah. the reality of this and right now what is happening is that our community here in Cairns, North Queensland are standing up again and saying, see, the government need to do something. We need to remove all crocodiles. And it's 
Yes, you are in, you could potentially be in danger if you go close to an estuary where large saltwater crocodiles live mm-hmm. or estuarine crocodiles live. Absolutely. But it's more about educating people and, and getting them to understand why crocodiles are important to our overall whole ecosystem flowing onto the reef. So mm-hmm. I don't know if you can explain anything in regards to the estuarine crocodile, their role, but also that importance of them being that apex predator as well. And then that flow-on effect mm-hmm. to the reef. What would happen if we did crop yeah. saltwater crocodiles in North Queensland? Well, just like sharks, they are very important apex predators in their own ecosystem. They control a lot of different animals, uh, populations around where they live. That includes things like fish and insects when they're small. And when they get bigger, though, you know, some of the species that people complain about being pests now are things that crocodiles would be eating. Again, everything exists in natural numbers. Water birds, things like kangaroos, wallabies, those are all part of a crocodile's diet once it grows up. There's also a lot of introduced animals that thankfully a crocodile will eat as well. You know, feral pigs and things like that are huge parts of crocodile diets, and they're also a really big problem ecologically. They destroy a lot of nests for other native animals. They uproot a lot of vegetation. And so it's one of those times where nature kind of can solve a problem that we created, but we're trying to, but we're complaining about, oh, there's too many pigs. Oh, there's too many crocs. Well, we kind of, you know, kind of silly because that's nature dealing with something that we've in keeping those estuarine and shoreline ecosystems safe. So for example, keeping pigs from uprooting mangroves, and doing all of that. Uh, Those mangroves are keeping nutrients out of the reef, like we were saying. And so there's big connections. Everything is very much connected from up in the mountains where the water starts all the way through the rivers, estuaries, mangroves, and the reef. It's all really one big system, and it's one big planet, really. Everything that happens in the ocean here will have an effect ultimately somewhere else in some way. So... Mm. Definitely. And one thing is, is that, you know, now a lot of the community, I will say, I feel now more than ever, there are a lot more people behind keeping Mm -hmm. crocodiles and getting people to understand that, hey, you know, whether there's one or there's 10, you still, even if there's one, like don't go near the river. You don't know if it's that particular one, right? So I feel that there are, we're coming around, but there are still a lot of Mm -hmm. the community that will now be asking for a cull. And because of that gentleman who made his choice, the Mm -hmm. same as if I make a choice of walking across the road when there's a truck coming, that's my choice, right? So Mm -hmm. I'm well aware of the consequences there. So my thing here is like they were once hunted to near extinction. We may not have seen necessarily straight away the effects that could have had on our river systems and the reef. Do you know, like, I don't know if you know this, and I certainly do not know this, but Mm -hmm. do you know how long it could take when you take a big apex predator out of an ecosystem and that break of the whole kind of, it just unravels all the way out to the reef? And Mm. you were saying the mangroves as well. And so here we are thinking that we take the crocs out to keep us safe, but yet a lot of people don't know and understand that without crocodiles, it could be affecting our mangroves, and without mangroves, mm-hmm. it affects our Great Barrier Reef. And so people don't connect that dots because of all mm-hmm. the education. It's getting the information to the people. Mm-hmm. Do you know how long it could possibly take if, let's say, the community did win with that and the government are like, right, now we need to action something to keep our community mm-hmm. safe, although it's a false sense of security. You're not safe, everyone, unless they are extinct. 
stinks. Yeah. And then, yeah, so I don't know. What's your opinion on that? How long could something like that take to unsh? It's really hard to say or put a number on it because part of what scientists would do to study that is they would sort of compare it to a place where things are normal, where it's unaffected by people over time. But it's really hard because we don't have a second Great Barrier Reef that we can run experiments on and figure that out. So it's almost, you know, we could maybe do comparisons with reefs off WA, where the population is much lower, but there's different variables there. The reefs are different. The weather is different. There's all sorts of differences that you'd have to take into account. It's almost impossible to kind of give a timeline. It's also really difficult to isolate what effect that would be from, because we're seeing problems happen from different sources. So we're seeing the reef affected by climate change but we're also seeing the effects of nutrient runoff, of crown of thorns. And so if hypothetically we took crocodiles out of terrestrial ecosystems, it would be really, really difficult to figure out whether what we were seeing on the reef, if we did see something, what was the cause of that? Whether it was actually the removal of crocodiles over a hundred years, maybe, or if it was actually something else over that time, because we're dealing with such a massive, complex system that we're still learning more and more about pretty much every time we go. Yeah, so. absolutely. Love that. Yeah. It's a hard one. So, okay, before we go, I actually want to ask you, I am going to get you back because I actually have a notebook here. Yeah. scribble right now of lots of things that <laughs> I want to talk to you about. But I want to know, what is your favourite animal within the well the, the sea and why yeah i love sharks in general they're just so interesting to me as the perfect predators they are the sensory systems a lot of the research i've been involved with has been in shark genetics and they're just such cool animals collectively sharks it's really hard to pick a specific species that i like i love hammerheads a lot I also love a lot of the pelagic species, which are the open ocean ones, like blue sharks and makos, just because they're so fast and agile. Yeah, probably sharks if I had to uh, choose a group of animals that I was the most fond of. Yeah, well, maybe we need to get you back to actually have a chat yeah. about sharks one time. Yeah. I would love to be I back. I really enjoyed our chat. Thank you so much for coming along. And yeah, I, You're welcome. I believe a lot of people would have got a lot out of this podcast. So I really do appreciate your knowledge. And you are a scientist and marine biologist and all sorts of things. And you live in everything in regards to, you know, specifically marine environment. So I feel I really enjoyed your talk that you used to do at the Cairns Aquarium mm -hmm. in regards to fish and their adaptations. And you you actually mentioned within the mm. talk as well how sharks have shaped how fish colors are how they behave and all that sort of stuff so i think that's, mm -hmm. that's really well i'm going to be selfish here and that's something that interests <laughs> you to share that yeah no so, it's really cool yeah uh, we will definitely get you back and also something else that interests me was shells and how things like that grow and, oh, yeah. and the nutrients and all that mm -hmm. uh, the ph within the water is really interesting we could honestly probably do years and years of podcasts with you so <laughs> everyone stay tuned with that because I feel that we definitely will have Andrew back as a regular and you can share with us awesome. all your knowledge as well as any new research yeah. and study that's come out. Mm -hmm. and yeah, so thank you so much, Andrew. For yeah, I'd love to be back. Awesome. No problem at all. I always love talking to you and I hope everyone else yeah. enjoyed it. But otherwise, um, stay tuned for more of Andrew's podcast later on. But thank you, Andrew. You enjoy your Friday. 
It's Friday afternoon. I will. Or Friday morning. Thank you. And you have a good Friday and weekend as well. We will. So thank you very much. And we'll talk to you again soon. Bye, Andrew. Thanks. Bye. If you want to connect with Andrew, you can go and visit him on Instagram, Facebook, or also his website, which is absolutely amazing. Andrew actually spends a lot of time underwater, and his website is where you can see all his photography, as well as download or purchase your own photos from him. All those links are in the podcast notes. Now, I hope you enjoyed that chat. We will definitely get Andrew back because I believe I'm actually really looking forward to the conversation about um, fish and how they're adapted for survival in the Great Big ocean there. Now, one thing I do want to bring up is I truly, truly believe that we need to continue to have tough conversations in regards to our wildlife, our human animal interaction, global warming or any other controversial topic out there. One thing is, is that whether you agree with things or not, having these conversations allow us to learn more and then have more curiosity to find out further information. So I think when it comes to science and who do we listen to? Are we listening to the media? I don't think so. Are we listening to the government? Mm -hmm. That's very controversial as well. Are we listening to the scientists themselves who do all this research, who do all this study and actually live amongst it and see the data or see the information that is at hand there? So having these conversations conversations, I will continue to have them on our podcasts. Please, I would love to know any feedback, your thoughts, connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, or even email. I really look forward to having a chat there as well. But otherwise, I hope you enjoyed that. We will be back next week with a new wild chat. See you later. Take care.